To find out more about the series, please visit our website at virgilkaylock.uk. The Strange Tales of Virgil Kaylock Of Ice and Darkness Chapter One There is the sound of knocking. A sickening, relentless, dull thumping that will not stop. I follow the sound through empty streets, and the dead watch me as I pass. Dust sits thick on every surface, and grey bushes and trees grow through the broken pavements and rooftops. Doors slam shut, though I know there is no one left alive to close them. A figure, is it a king, a prince, sits on a throne at the center of a large square. He nods at me as if in welcome, but I know those milk-white eyes are cold and cannot see, and that he too is dead. And all the while the sound of knocking, thud, thud, thud. I awake covered in sweat, in dread and panic, with the sound of my own heartbeat pounding in my head. The dream, when it comes, does not leave me at dawn. It lingers like an echo into my waking hours. I can't shake it off. It persists like an illness, like guilt. It was the summer of 1926. For a whole year, my life had continued without incident. One would imagine, after the horrific events in the Hellfire Caves, that I would welcome the peace and safety of a quiet life. I think it is true to say that ennui and disenchantment are horrors in their own right, and no escape at all. The British Museum was in a state of excitement. An expedition had set out to explore the east coast of Greenland, a scientific endeavour to map the landmass and make contact with the Inuit people of that area. The Arctic regions at that time were mostly unexplored and held a fascination for scientists and public alike, and the expedition had featured prominently in the national press. The British Museum, as joint financiers of the venture in partnership with the Royal Geographical Society, had prepared the new Arctic rooms in expectation of a horde of anthropological booty. This is an embarrassment, Kaylock. We have the grand opening in a few days' time. A grand opening. People are coming, very important people, yet there's nothing to show them. Where are they? There's no news. Meeks should have been back some weeks ago. The explorers were comprised of seven men, six cartographers from the Royal Geographical Society and Joseph Meeks, the celebrated anthropologist from the British Museum. Their return was eagerly anticipated, and a reception had been prepared for the occasion. Where in God's name are they? They never arrived. Joseph Meeks and his companions had vanished into that land of cold and ice. A trapper had found their hut on a remote island called Nananapok, intact and well-stocked with supplies and fuel. But it was uninhabited, 
and there was no sign of life. They had disappeared without a trace. The Royal Geographical Society hastily arranged for a small party to travel north to learn the truth of their disappearance. As a partner in the enterprise, our director insisted that the British Museum should also be represented, and a request was made for a volunteer. You're an idiot! My grand and generous gesture did not impress Dorothy. You're insane! I certainly am not. Someone has to do it. But I don't see why. What good will it do? Is it likely that they're alive? Sadly, no. Then what's the point? It is important to understand what happened. Their families want to know. Oh, no, what? They died. It is a dangerous place. People don't just disappear. There are questions that need an answer. Well, and you're the one to ask them? Yes. I think so, yes. Well, you know precisely nothing about polar exploration. I'm not going on my own. So you're relying on someone else to keep you alive. Who? I will be part of an experienced team led by Dr Lennox. He's an extremely experienced and respected Arctic explorer. Have you met him? Not yet. But he knows what he's doing. He's journeyed in the Arctic for years. He knows the territory and he knows how to cope with adversity. That is, if adversity should occur, which I am informed is quite unlikely. It's not a day out. It's the Arctic. Actually, it's just inside the Arctic Circle. And it's summer. I should be back within a few weeks. Quite safe. Safe? Seven men are dead. Presumed dead. Virgil, are you doing this to impress me? No, of course not. Are you impressed? No, not even slightly. You're an idiot. Dorothy's misgivings echoed my own. I had no experience and was unsure that I had the character for such an enterprise. My supervisor, Mr Chidlow, seemed doubtful, but I had volunteered. The wheels were in motion and there was no turning back. You are to meet Dr Lennox this afternoon at Lowther Lodge at three. Don't be late. Oh, the director has cleared things with your father. Apparently he approves. Oh, right. Good. Lowther Lodge in Kensington Gore, as everyone knows, is the home of the Royal Geographical Society and the starting point of countless expeditions to the furthest corners of the world. The name itself holds the very quintessence of adventure. I loitered outside the door until my tardiness prompted me to ring the bell. Good afternoon, sir. Yes, good afternoon. I have an appointment with Dr Lennox. Dr Lennox, sir? Yes, that's right. He's not here at present, sir. Are you sure? I have an appointment. I'm quite sure, sir. Sorry, sir. Right. Um, well, thank you. Um, good day. It was with some relief that I turned to leave, but the doorman caught my arm. You might try the Wheel of Life, sir. The Wheel of Life? In Pennyfield, sir. I will try there first, sir. Pennyfields? In Limehouse, sir. Oh, right. Thank you. Oh, yes. I fumbled to find a sixpence to place in his proffered hand. Much obliged. Thank you, sir. I would have been content to leave my quest there and then. However, I had the afternoon at my disposal, and I could not return to the museum without anything to show for it. So I set off towards the East End. I took an omnibus as far as the Tower of London and began the remainder of the journey on foot, following the roads as they divided into smaller and smaller byways, until I found myself in the maze of damp and decrepit alleyways of Limehouse. Small, dark houses, many of them shuttered, seemed to be leaning on each other to prevent collapse. 
each of them hugging its own dreadful secret. Penny fields ran through the middle of these melancholy streets. It was a stretch of bars and brothels interlaced with Chinese stores and laundries whose brightly colored shop fronts stood in contrast to the gloom of poverty and vice. And above them all, the masts and funnels of vast ships towered over the rooftops. After a good deal of searching, I found the Wheel of Life in a small blind alley called Silver Lion Court a strange and shabby building of plum-colored bricks next to a rag-and-bone shop, an oil lamp hung from the wall to illuminate a dark and recessed doorway. A pair of eyes, thick with black coal, peered at me from a slot in the door. Good afternoon. I have an appointment. An appointment? Yes, with Dr. Lennox. I was told I could find him here. And you have an appointment. That's right. Business or pleasure? It's business. Then you have the wrong address. There's no business here. Hello? Look, I, I was told to come here. Business or pleasure? Um, pleasure? Then you'd better come in. I entered a dimly lit hallway. The walls were dark red and lined with garish Chinese masks. Virgil Kaylock, how do you do? Follow me. And you are? I didn't catch your name. Cassandra. My host passed through a beaded curtain in the wall and disappeared. As I followed, the overpowering sweet smell of incense and smoke caught my throat and made my eyes sting. The room was large, dark, and sumptuously fashioned in the Oriental style. Swathes of red brocaded fabric hung liberally from the walls alongside paper lanterns, Chinese banners and images of dragons and monsters. This way. Thank you. Reclining bodies lay on cushioned platforms nursing long pipes. As they inhaled, a brief glow illuminated their faces, only to be obscured again by shadow. <coughs> I was in an opium den. Doctor. We approached a figure laying on his side, a slight man of about 60 years old, staring fixedly into the shadows, a pipe held limply in his outstretched hand. Dr. Lennox. He peered at us in confusion, as if we were strange creatures who had wandered into his dream. Dr. Lennox, you have a visitor. Oh? Who is it? How should I know? She gestured for me to sit on the platform adjacent to the professor. You take a pipe. For me? Oh, no, 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 thank you. It wasn't a question. Um. <coughs> she walked off. Dr. Lennox was looking at me now with glassy eyes. He had hollow cheeks and pale, waxy skin. Dr. Lennox? Hmm? Dr. Benjamin Lennox? My name is Virgil Kaylock. It's a great pleasure to meet you. I work at the British Museum. I have an interview with you today. <coughs> interview? At three o'clock? There are no clocks here. Do you see? Three o'clock at Lowther Lodge. Three o'clock, Lowther Lodge. I'll be there. Um, I, I believe we'll be travelling together, sir. Travelling? To Greenland. I presume you'd like to examine my suitability for the expedition? Do you believe in God, Mr. Kaylock? Yes, sir. Yes, I do. Good for you. 
The professor took a long draw on his pipe and sank deeper into the couch. I think it might be an idea to rearrange. Another day, perhaps. The British Museum, you say? Yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, my qualifications. Um, I have extensive experience in cataloguing and curating samples and artefacts. I have spent some time with ships in Egypt, and I have begun to study the culture of Arctic civilizations. I have references. Opium is a strange and terrible country, Mr. Kalok. A vision of the world to come. It is a... a premonition. A window into heaven. And a trapdoor into hell. Yes, I see. It is a... a warning. A warning? It is a conversation with God himself. Right. And God always speaks the truth. Of course. The terrifying truth. May I have some water? Yes, absolutely. Um, here. As he reached out to take the glass, I noticed that two fingers were missing from his left hand. Is it possible, do you think, for a man to exist without a soul? Um... No, I don't think so, no. To live without a soul, imagine. No hope of redemption, no absolution, <coughs> no rest for all eternity. Dr. Lennox, I shall rearrange our appointment, perhaps at a more convenient time. You cannot I... live without a soul, Mr. Kaylock, but then neither can you die. I know I have a soul burns away. Do you see? Right. Yes, I see. To my alarm, the hostess arrived carrying a pipe and a collection of paraphernalia and placed it in front of me. Um, she lit an oil lamp and, opening a wrap of cloth, took out a small ball of a reddish-brown substance. Ten shillings. No, thank you. Really, I won't if you don't mind. You came for pleasure, you pay. Thanks, but I really can't stay. One Sorry. pipe. Only one. Thank you, I would rather not. She gave me a look of contempt and walked away. <sighs> Putain. If oblivion frightens you, then might I suggest that you don't go to the Arctic? I'm going there because there is a job to be done, sir. A job? What is it? To find Meeks and his companions. Find them? Oh, no, no, no. They have been found already. Why do you say that? What do you mean? Hell is made of ice. Did you know that? Ice, not flame. I wish you good day, sir. Be careful what you go looking for. You might just find him. Him? Hmm? Find who? The fellow in the ice. The devil in the ice. Black, hollow, empty eyes. There's nothing there but cold. Cold, ice, and hate. Who are you talking about? I don't understand you. You might just find him. Find who? The one without a soul. And who is that? Who are you talking about? Shaman Carr. Shaman Carr? What is that? What is Shaman Carr? Dr. Lennox opened his mouth to speak, but his head lolled, his eyes rolled back, and he fell asleep. Miss Cassandra watched me cross the floor and let myself out. I told no one about the state of Dr. Lennox, 
or the fact that my fate was in the hands of an opium addict. It did not take me long to find out what he meant by Shaman Carr. I had full access to the books in the museum's new Inuit mythology section. Shaman Carr, it means Man of Snow, a huge and frightening mythical monster that is said to roam the frozen wastelands, killing and eating those that cross its path. Any sane person would assume that it was a story to frighten children. Perhaps I was no longer sane. I had seen so many strange things in my life. Why shouldn't such a fantastical beast exist? I was given a budget and sent to be measured up at Bailey and Newbold's at Hay Hill, where I was kitted out in knitted underwear, vests, shirts, pants and gloves, woolen leggings and stiff trousers, a balaclava, an anorak, thick, insulated boots, a water bottle, a pocket knife and an axe. I stood in front of the mirror, appalled at my reflection. I was uncomfortable and hot. I didn't look intrepid. I looked comical. It had taken me a very short amount of time to regret my decision bitterly. You get used to it. I looked up, startled. An amused young woman in fashionable attire and a hat stood in the corner of the shop, her hand resting on a chair. Your friends at the museum told me where I might find you. Uh, Virgil Kaylock, how do you do? Sorry if I made you jump. I'm Agatha, the daughter of Dr. Lennox, and I want to make a better impression than my father. Oh, I see. How do you do? Actually, I'm rather uncomfortable. You don't know the half of it. If it's comfort you want, you're on the wrong boat. Yes, I'm beginning to realise that. You have to wear it in. It hurts like hell. It rubs and chafes, then it becomes part of you, and you won't want to take it off. Ah, yes. Forget the woolen long johns. You'll find that you'll sweat, and then it freezes, and then you're in trouble. Cotton is better. Right, thanks. I must look ridiculous. Not at all. You look like someone who's taking things seriously, unlike my father, who let himself down. I can only apologise. It is his weakness. He has a love affair with opium. He tries to keep it quiet. It's best that people don't know. I haven't mentioned it. I'm grateful. Thank you. Why doesn't he apologise for himself? He is embarrassed, and so he should be. It's not a good look. Were you disappointed? I was surprised. He's not a Scot or an Amundsen, I'm afraid. Not what you'd expect of a famous polar explorer. The list of his accomplishments is immensely impressive. He spent years in the Arctic. He should be retired and writing a book. I didn't catch him at a good time. He's not what he was. He's getting old and prone to self-pity. He had put it all behind him. His Arctic days were over. But then this happens and he's off again. I see. I know it seems unlikely, but he has more determination than anyone. He's a driven man. He's ambitious. Have you heard of him? Well, actually, no. He's not ambitious. Then what drives him? Unfinished business. And what experience do you have of the Arctic? Well, none, actually. Oh. But I'm reading what I can. Well, that's good. Well, it's a start. Your presence isn't strictly necessary. You don't have to do this, you know. I beg your pardon? I can give you a way out if you like. But I don't want a way out. No, you look scared to death. It's true, I'm inexperienced, but I'm quite fit and determined. And you are level-headed, balanced, and of sound mind? Yes, I am. And I'm without vices. Why do you suppose seven men disappeared? Well, to determine that is surely the point of the expedition. Why do you think they disappeared? Well, let me see. Avalanche, bears, starvation, hypothermia, sickness, insanity... Insanity? 
The extremity of the cold and isolation affects the mind as well as the body. Who knows what those men went through? You think they went mad? It's not uncommon. About 20 years ago, there was a settlement of trappers on Ananapog. They built huts and set traps and overwintered there. A chap called Isaac Wallace was the only survivor. Before he died of exhaustion and frostbite, he said that all the men had gone crazy. They had come to believe that a malevolent spirit creature was watching them. Then one by one, they disappeared, leaving just two. Mr. Wallace made a journey of 80 miles to the next settlement after his companion had decided that the only way that he could please this beast was to feed himself alive to his own dogs. Good Lord. The Inuit called it Piblokto. Snow madness. Panic, delirium, hearing things, seeing things. Things like Shaoman Carr. It was something your father mentioned. Look, I wanted to meet you, and I wanted you to have the chance to change your mind. Thank you, Miss Lennox. I have no intention of changing my mind. I have a job to do, and it is my intention, it is my responsibility to do it. Sometimes the responsible thing is to walk away. Goodbye, Mr. Kaylock. Don't pack your boots too tight. It's the air that keeps your feet warm. I wanted to take off my ridiculous outfit and withdraw from the whole enterprise. And I would not do it. Was it pride? Yes. But it was also a grim resolution to face the fear. And the fear was growing steadily inside me. Who was it? The figure on his throne. The thud, thud, thud that stopped my breath and gripped my chest. This time, I would not turn away. Even if it risked my life. For what could be worse than death? What indeed? Ice and Darkness, Chapter 1. Virgil Kalock was played by Nicholas Bolton. The Young Kalock, Daniel Fraser. Dr. Lennox, Andrew Havel. Agatha Lennox, Ellie Piercy. Jorgen Olsen, Fergus O'Donnell. And Dorothy Bell was played by Ellie Turner. The music was composed and performed by Neil Brand. The Strange Tales of Virgil Kalock are produced by Richard Varman, Martin Malone, and John Rand, and are supported using lottery funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England. It is a K-Lock production. To find out more about the series, please visit our website at virgilkaylock.uk.